Welcome to Radical Simple Living Podcasts. This is Series 2, Episode 10. My name's Ray Lovegrove and I'm talking to you from the kitchen of my homestead here in Smallland, southern Sweden. Um, There's a fire going, as you might hear crackling in the background. There's only one cat in at the moment because it's a little bit warmer than it has been recently here. But that cat is known for having a restless character, so you may hear from her at some point in the programme, I don't know. Um, We are passing here quite quickly from autumn to winter, and it's getting colder. Uh, Today is quite mild. It's... uh, I should explain before I start talking about this about it's in I'm going to give you temperatures in Celsius because I find Fahrenheit I'm happy <laughs> I'm sorry to everybody who uses it in the states but uh it's not so much it's not a metric in fact I, I will tell you that Fahrenheit is a metric system it's just not a very good metric system and uh, let me tell you the story quickly before we get going Fahrenheit was a sort of international life he led, Fahrenheit. He was he was born in Gdansk. And if you look at where Gdansk is, depending on the how old the source is that you're looking of, it's in Poland, it is now. But it has been in Germany. And before being in Germany, it was in Prussia. And before being in Prussia, it was in Lithuania. And before Lithuania, it was Poland again. So Gdansk hasn't moved. Danzig, the German name for it. Gdansk hasn't moved, but borders have moved around it. So Fahrenheit was born in Gdansk. And we usually refer to him as a German because Germany didn't exist when he was born. But Germany usually, saying you were German meant you were a German speaker in those days. But he didn't even stay in Gdansk, he moved to the Hague, which is in Holland. So he's sometimes referred to as Dutch or Polish or German or Lithuania. He was a a European. And he decided to come up with a temperature scale. And because he was a scientist, he decided to make it metric. He said, I'm going to have 100 degrees in my temperature scale. And so far you're saying, sensible man? Yeah, that makes sense. Because common sense is a big part of simple living. There's no doubt about it. But the silly thing that he did was the two points he chose. Um, For his lower point, that was going to be zero degrees, he chose a temperature of a bucket of ice and salt in his cellar. And because we can't get back to his cellar and we don't know the exact proportions of ice and and salt that were in the bucket, it's very hard to reproduce his data for this. But he said that's going to be zero on my temperature scale. Okay, fair enough. But when he came to choose 100 for his scale, he chose the blood temperature of a freshly shot stag. Now, why did he choose the blood temperature of a freshly shot stag? I don't know. I don't know why he chose a bucket of ice and salt in his cellar. But, you know, he was was a a bit off the wall that day, I suspect. Um, He didn't think it out too fully because, again, you can't reproduce that upper figure, can you? 
So he took these two points and between them he divided everything up into 100 degrees and he called that a degree. And we know that today is a degree Fahrenheit and it's the same scale that you still use today. People have forgotten that it was a metric system, it was based on 100, because they've forgotten about the bucket of ice and salt and they've forgotten about the deer's blood. Meanwhile, in Sweden, of all places, the very country from which I'm talking to you this morning, a scientist called Celsius. Now, all Swedish scientists at the time gave themselves a Latinized name in order to be published and be taken seriously. So his real name wasn't Celsius, but he called himself Celsius. And he agreed that 100 was a good thing, but he was far more rational about what he chose as his two points because he said for one of my points I'm going to choose the temperature at which water freezes at normal atmospheric pressure. Very sensible. The temperature at which water freezes at normal atmospheric pressure. Sensible man. And for his upper point he chose, well for his other point he chose the temperature at which water boils at normal air pressure. There we go, you can reproduce those, you can reproduce normal air pressure if you wait for the right time. You can see the point water freezes, you can see the point water boils. And again, he divided these into 100 um, units, which we call now a degree Celsius, which is fine. But he needed tweaking a little bit because he chose the lower point, freezing waters being 100, and boiling waters being zero. Why did he do that? I have absolutely no idea. Why would you do it that way round? Why would you take naught as boiling and a hundred as freezing? A backward scale? I don't know. I don't know. These 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 people in history, we think we can understand them, but you know, they were free thinkers. They they came up with things without really chatting. They didn't have a group of colleagues to talk to it about, really, did they? Because somebody would have put their hand up at the back of the room and said, you know, am I missing something or should this be the other way around? Anyway, another Swedish scientist with a Latinized name called Linnaeus, who came from Smallland. He's one of the most famous people to come from Smallland. Uh, we have a university named after him. who's a great uh, uh, botanist but he invented the system of classifying living organisms and giving them latin names but he said wouldn't it be more sensible if we did it the other way around and the temperature at which water freezes is zero and the temperature at which water boils is 100 so any temperature below the freezing point of water is a negative number now to me as a, a simple-minded person and as a, as a scientist, I'm a, I'm a chemist by trade, that makes absolute sense. So there we have the Celsius scale, and that's what I use. A lot of people think, because I use Celsius all the time, I'm not happy with imperial units. I'm only happy... That's not so. I can use feet and inches like the next man as, as good as anyone else. I can talk in miles. I can talk all sorts of things, and gallons, and pints, and quarts. I, I'm fine with all of those. It's just degrees Fahrenheit that seriously upsets me because it's so crazy. I know you like using it, North America. I know you're happy with it. I was raised with it, so I understand how it works. I just don't like it. So if I tell you today's temperature is quite mild, it's around zero. 
it's around the freezing point of all Chennai back garden at the moment. Um, and tomorrow night and the night after, I think it gets to about minus seven or eight. We do, in the middle of winter, get down to minus 20. Now, I know by North American standards, that's not very cold. We don't have the kind of temperatures you reach uh, in Montana, for instance, or Wyoming or, or, or Minnesota. We don't have those temperatures. We don't have the temperatures you reach in New York State or that you reach in, 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 in Boston or Maine or um, the kind of temperatures you even reach in Chicago. We don't reach those low temperatures, but we do have a longer winter because of the darkness here. We, we, we are, uh, you know, where I am, if you follow a line of, of, of latitude going along, we will be somewhere in the middle of Canada. And we suffer, and bits of Alaska too, are on the same parallel as, 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 as I am. So... The shortness of the days means that winter goes on longer. So it could snow here, and it has some years. It can snow quite happily in October, and that snow can still be on the ground at the end of April. That's how long winter can be, even though the temperature, the coldest it's been since I've been here is minus 27 Celsius, which isn't cold at all by some people's standards. Don't write and tell me it's much colder where you are. I know. I know it is. Okay. Don't tell me about that. Tell me about anything else, but don't tell me, oh, we're much colder than that. A lot of people think Sweden is much colder than it is, and it is in the north of Sweden. The coldest European temperature ever on record was recorded in the north of Sweden. So the north of Sweden is very cold. I'm in the south of Sweden. That's a lot milder. Now, I didn't come today to talk about a history lesson or a science lesson. I came to talk about planning. Planning is a very important part of living simply. We have to plan, otherwise we get things seriously wrong. It's um, a commonly misheld belief that simple living means waking up every morning and stretching and looking out the window at the sunshine and getting up and scratching your head and deciding what to do. It might be like that for some people, but for, for most people that live a simple lifestyle, particularly a homesteading lifestyle of the kind I lead, you have to plan. I'm sitting in my kitchen now. I'm burning wood. I had to plan for that wood to be stored all over summer. I had to plan for it to be dry enough. I had to plan for it to be chopped and I had to plan for it to be brought in the house. If I didn't do those things, I'd be sitting here in the cold. Um, I had to plan for my store cupboard, which has got lots of um, dry goods in it from the store, but it's also got lots of canned goods that I can myself and lots of pickles that I pickled myself and if I wasn't doing that in the summer if I wasn't canning and pickling and, and buying and chopping and stacking and storing and doing all these things the winter wouldn't work out as it should so in your life however simple you are whether you're living on some vast um Oh, let's say you're in one of those states I mentioned earlier. Let's say you've got a vast ranch in Wyoming or, or, or Montana. Uh, or if you're living in a flat somewhere in Barcelona or in Florida, your life has got to be planned for. I can't tell you what those plans are because my life in southern Sweden is presumably different from your life. But the one thing I can tell you about planning is this. Sometimes you've got to plan for the long term. Sometimes you've got to be thinking of the long future and what happens in it. And sometimes you've got to be planning for the short term. What am I going to cook for supper tonight? That kind of thing. And 
between those two, there's a medium term. And the medium term is, have I got enough wood for winter? If I run out of wood in the middle of winter, I've got a problem here. So I have to plan very carefully for that. So everybody knows about long-term, short-term and medium-term planning. If that's in your job, you probably have to plan for those things too. But I'm going to introduce some other things here. Um, you've also got to plan for things that you fully expect to happen. You've got to plan for things that could happen, but you hope not. And to some extent, you've also got to plan for the unforeseen, haven't you? Remember, Donald Rumsfeld has this little quote about there are things we know and things we don't know, but there are also things we don't know we don't know. Uh, you know, uh, that's a paraphrase, but you get the idea. You've also got to plan for things that you hope aren't going to happen, but you don't know. And you might think, I don't do that, but you do. Your car, if you've got a car, is full of airbags. And probably airbags was one of the selling points of the car when you got it. It also probably has some pretty good seatbelts fitted, I hope so. Now, when you get in your car, you do up your seatbelt and you trust your airbags to be working properly. And if your car is a smart car and has got all kinds of safety features, you expect those to work. You don't want them to work. You don't say, oh, I'll get in my car today, I'll put on the seatbelt and the airbags and then I'll crash my car and that'll be fine. That's not what you're doing, I hope. What you're doing is planning for something that you hope will never happen. You get in a car crash. Now, it's not impossible that you will crash your car. I hope nobody does. I hope you drive safely and the other drivers around you drive safely too. Nobody plans for that, but it can happen. And in all walks of life, we've got to plan for the unexpected. Now, when I get in my wood together, I can say very happily, right, you know, I know it's going to get cold this winter. I don't know how cold and I don't know for how long. So I've got to really get enough wood in to last me for the coldest winter that's likely. And I've also got to plan for the longest winter possible. And if that means I've got too much wood in my wood store, that's not a problem because it will stay there for another year. And it means I have to uh, acquire uh, more wood, less wood next year than I would other. I should explain that I produce about a third of the wood I need myself from fallen trees. Usually I've got a few trees that fell over in the strong winds earlier on in the year or in the process of falling over. I will now the leaves are gone on a day when it isn't too snowy. I will go out there and fill those trees and they will be ready for burning next winter. Not this winter, but next winter. So about a third of my wood comes from that source. The other two thirds I have to buy in usually. If it's a very windy year and lots of trees have fallen down, I don't need to buy in that much. And if it's a very mild winter and I don't use up much of my supply, I don't need to buy as much either. But I usually have to buy some wood. Now, what do we need to do to plan effectively? We need to think what could go wrong what is likely to go wrong at some point and things that we know aren't going to go wrong they're just in the normal case of events like having enough food in having enough plasters in your first aid kit having enough kibble for your pets that kind of thing is everyday planning that you expect 
but it's the unexpected planning that sometimes gets us wrong. Where I live, a strong wind can take the power out. And the reason is because I've got overhead cables. It's an old system in this house, as I've learned to my cost this year, um, when things went seriously wrong. Um, but I can expect if there's winter winds, autumn winds, spring winds, that a tree somewhere drops a branch on the power line, my power goes out. And it might go out for 10 minutes. It might go out for 12 hours was the longest cut I had last winter. It could be longer. The longest um, power cut here went on for weeks when there was an enormous storm and it took weeks to restore all the power over Sweden. Um, uh, that was a storm that maybe happens once in a lifetime. But you know what? Once in a lifetime events have a habit of occurring quite often nowadays, don't they? So I, I won't hold my breath on that one. I've got to be prepared for power cuts. I've got to make sure my battery, I have batteries that I charge up with solar panels. I've got to make sure they're charged up. I've got to make sure I've got adequate drinking water supplies in the house. I've got a, a pump that works at minus 20 that I installed in the garden so I can pump water up from the ground if it gets cold and there's a power cut. I'm not going to be without water. I'm going to have my water still. I've got to be prepared to make water safe to drink if it's not gone through the filtering system that comes into the house. I'm drawing it straight from the well. I've got to treat it. If um, if I want to drink it and I've got to have enough, I use chlorine. I've got to have enough chlorine solution in. Fresh chlorine solution isn't going to give it. So I can do that. Again, it's planning. Um, maybe if you live an ultra modern life where you live in a flat and every and there's a store across the street and you're centrally heated, maybe you don't have to plan that much. But a, somebody once said that a simple life is doing a lot of complicated things a complicated life is doing lots of complicated things but letting other people do them for you so your heating may be a switch of a button where my heating takes planning and chopping and shifting and storing and all those things those are the big differences now amongst the things we've got to plan for uh, obviously are things like finances we've got to make sure we have enough money in the bank now, at times of high inflation, at times of um, food in particular and energy being very volatile in the prices and supply being very volatile, that takes a lot of planning. We've got to plan to be self-sufficient. If we want to make our own food, if we want to grow food in our garden and turn it into canned food we can eat, that's making food in my books, We've got to make sure we grow the right crops. We've got to make sure we look after them. We keep the pests off. We harvest them when they're at their best. We can them at a time that is perfect, when they're just picked and fresh from the plot. And then we've got to store them. And then we've got to rotate them. We've got to plan, oh, I've got uh, uh, 50 cans of beans this year. So if I want to have beans all the way through the winter, that's two cans a week. That's the kind of thing you've got to do. So you need to plan for self-sufficiency. I'm already planning what I'm going to grow on the plot next year, so I've got to think about that. If you've got projects you want to do, I'm, I'm thinking about all this stuff because it's the change of season here. And though in the Southern Hemisphere you're changing from spring to summer, and we in the Northern Hemisphere are changing from autumn to winter, changing seasons makes you plan. I know people in Australia, New Zealand, Southern Africa, South America are planning for the summer ahead 
but then have one eye on the season beyond that always. Also plan for your skill base. Um, I'm always saying this, that if you have skills, that's fine. But you can always add another skill to it. I'm just talking about canning. If you don't do canning, what a great thing to do, to learn to do some canning. Get yourself a pressure canner and start canning. You could do that for next summer. If you don't make pickles and jams, read some books, watch some videos. YouTube is wonderful at people doing this. Learn how to do it. Start doing it next year. If you don't know how to knit, or how to dress make, or how to use the sewing machine. I speak as somebody that doesn't know any of those things, I'm afraid. I can repair things, that's about as far as my needlework goes. You can hone up your skills to be even better at these things. So you need to plan to build up your skills too. And you also need to be planning for your own health. Nothing is more important than your own health and the health of your family. You've got to plan. Am I looking after myself properly? Am I getting enough exercise in the winter months? <laughs> We're shifting all that wood. The answer for me is yes, I am. Are you eating properly? Are you taking precautions against the infectious diseases that are all around us? All of these things require planning. If you've got young children, you need to plan for them. If you've got older children, they can be involved in the planning process. One of the things I would say about planning is this. First of all, you have to forget what's going on in the world. You can't be so bothered by the war in the Middle East. You can't be so bothered by the war in the Ukraine. You can't be so bothered by global warming and rising sea temperatures that you don't plan properly for yourself and your family and your own safety and your own health and your own well-being. I'm not saying don't think about these things. I'm not saying don't keep informed about these things. But they are things, unless there are any world leaders listening to this podcast. If there are, I'd like to know who you are, please. If there are world leaders listening to this podcast, yeah, you, you should be planning for those things. But most of us can't do anything about these things. Sure, we can try and live making as much difference as we can to the climate problem or to the problem of plastics, the problem of messing up the environment, the problem of protecting wildlife, of feeding pollinators. Yeah, we can do all these things on small scale. And I talk about those things a lot in series one. I can't do anything to stop the war in the Middle East, nor the war in the Ukraine, nor can I have other than a tiny effect on the pollution of the planet or on global warming. So I cannot let these things stop me planning. One of the most refreshing things about reading people's diaries, even sometimes people that were undergoing incredible hardship in World War II here in Europe, is the fact that people got on with ordinary things as well. You know, Anne Frank may have been uh, locked in an attic in secret and her life may have been totally turned upside down but it didn't stop her writing her diary. And all the way through, we see that people were facing challenges and rising to those challenges. People were facing all kinds of problems about things they had to do, but they were finding ways to do them. There's a great series that you can find on YouTube called The Wartime Farm, which shows how a farm in Britain would have had to respond to the increasing demands to increase food production, 
to go without things, to use less energies, use less fertilizer, and yet make every use of every resource there. Read these things because you get a great strength of the, uh, 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 that comes through from the people that live through these terrible events and have got there. We know a lot of you will have had parents or maybe you yourself have been involved in some foreign war. Maybe you have served time in Iraq or Afghanistan or Vietnam or maybe some of the older listeners will have served in, in World War II or in the Korean War. If you did serve in war, or if you were on the home front in a war, you will have memories of how you got by. And a lot of how people got by was listening to music, reading books, cooking new things, doing all sorts of things. So whatever people have gone through in the past, we can learn from them and we can get through what we're facing at the moment. And I hope we can get through it properly and happily. So don't spend all your time worrying about those things when you're planning. Now what I'm planning at the moment is A, what I'm going to grow my plots next year and I will be looking at last year's failures. I will be looking at last year's problems and I can say what will I do to make those problems less of an issue? What can I do to look at the crops that did well last year and grow more of them and the ones that didn't do so well? Let's cut down on those a bit. What can I do to improve production and Obviously, I've got to plan for if I can process what I produce. It's no good producing vast amounts of a crop that you can't preserve, that you can only eat when it's coming. You know, I, I very much like lettuce. I like those butterhead lettuce that uh, people, some people, some of you never taste a butterhead lettuce. It's a, a fabulous experience. I love butterhead lettuce, but I can only keep so many of them. I can make French pea and lettuce soup, which is very nice, but I can only process so many lettuce. So although I like them, I like growing them, I've got to be rational about the number I grow. And if I give over some of that ground to growing beetroot, which I can pickle, that's an easier uh, crop to deal with. So think about all these things. Now, the whole point of radical simple living is it's simple living that looks at three things. It looks at living simply to avoid unnecessary complexity in your life. It involves making sure that your impact on the planet is any greater than it has to be. I.e. you're not just protecting the environment within your garden fence or within your small holding or your farm or your ranch. You're, you're working to protect the environment of the whole world by doing what you can. That's very important. That's what makes it radical, simple living rather than just living simply. But you've also got some idea. That was my thumb hitting the table. I'll, I'll say ouch when the podcast is over. Um, what you've also got to do is look at this spiritual dimension and see what spiritually you are getting out of simple living. And many of you know that I'm a Quaker. I'm not trying to convert anybody to Quakerism. You can't actually convert somebody to Quakerism. They have to be convinced of Quakerism. And this comes from a little booklet called Advices and Queries. Advices is a word, even though it's, it's not much used other than by Quakers in modern life. And while Quakers have no creed and they don't have a list of things they have to believe in, they do have this little book of advices and queries which tells you things to think about in the way you live your life. And every part of the world has its own version of this. So do go on the internet if you live in 
Maryland or if you live in, in um, Australia or South Africa or even if you live in, in the Czech Republic, you will have a version of advices and queries which you can look at and see it uh, as applies to your own part of the world. This is from the Britain yearly meeting of the Society of Friends Quakers and I think about this one all the time. And it certainly, I sit down and think about it when I'm planning things, because it helps. You ready for it? Here it goes. This is number 41, Advices and Query number 41. Try to live simply. A simple lifestyle freely chosen is a source of strength. Do not be persuaded into buying what you do not need or cannot afford. Do you keep yourself informed about the effects that your style of living is having on the global economy and the environment? Okay, I will print that um, at the bottom of this week's podcast so you can have a look at it or you can you can go on the web and find out where uh, where your local meeting has uh, given their own interpretation of this. It will vary a little bit from that, but not much. Now, when I'm sitting down to plan, whatever it is in my life, I think about these things. If I want to make some big investment, what effect is that? If I, you know, say I wanted to go off grid entirely and and do away with the electricity and just live with some solar cells, what effect is that having on the environment? What effects do my purchases have on the environment? What effect do my purchases have on people that produce those goods? Maybe they are working in a sweatshop somewhere in Southeast Asia. And because I don't want to support that sweatshop in Southeast Asia, I'm not going to buy those products. So it involves a lot of planning and a lot of care to try and extricate yourself from those things. Okay. Now, before I go, let me tell you what I'm busy doing this week. I shall be busy this week doing a bit more canning because I was so busy with canning in the summer that some of the produce, some of the fruits and berries I picked, blackberries, gooseberries, chokeberries, had to go in the freezer because I didn't have time to can them. So at the moment, I'm going in the process of every few days, pulling a whole load of these out the freezer, thawing them out and canning them. Uh, it's quite okay to do that, particularly with fruit that's very acidic, that's no problem. I shall also be planting more leaves for winter use and herbs for winter use. And I shall be going around the garden on days when it's not too cold and making sure everything is staked properly. And make sure no wild animals are digging up my new hedge that I put in. I found an enormous hole dug in the middle of some grass in the garden the other day. I don't know which animal did it. I think it was a fox, but I'm not sure. Um, there is wolf activity in the bit of small land I live in at the moment, so I haven't heard any, um, but I'll keep my eyes open and let you know. Okay, it's good to talk to you all. If you've not listened to these podcasts before, there are plenty more to listen to. And if you do listen and like what you hear, or if you listen and think I'm talking complete rubbish from beginning to end, but you know somebody else that might be interested in that kind of talk, pass on the message, please. Use social media if you can. I'm not too hot on it myself, but if you're good at social media, do publicise the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been nice talking with you.